I don't know about you. I could probably poll you this morning, and this is going to be rhetorical. I don't really want you to respond, I suppose. But uh, I was saying to Whitney last night, you know, I, I really don't want to do this this morning. I, I just have to admit it to you. This has been a tough week. Uh, I've been dealing with my own sin. I've been dealing with other people's sin. I've, I'm you know, watching families that we love as a church family struggle and go through pain. And, you know, there's just times where, where um, you don't feel like you've got a lot of energy left. And I, that's kind of where I am this morning. And my wise wife said, well, that's probably why you have to preach this morning. So um, you can pray for me because my heart's not completely engaged in this. I'm, I'm kind of weary, not necessarily physically, but just emotionally and spiritually. And, and I think she's right, though. I think as we approach this book, and this is what we're going to be covering together over the next many months, that, that this is what Genesis teaches us, ultimately, that we have an amazing God and yet, this world's really broken. But it won't stay that way. God's making all things new. And we approach a book like this, we will be approaching this book over the next many months with those thoughts in mind. I want us to develop a desire to see our God. And as Mark read for us a bit ago from Psalm 8, we, we believe theologically that this world was made by a majestic God, and then it declares His majesty. But we forget that a lot because we're surrounded by all kinds of things which call that into question. We're surrounded by all kinds of things that, that grab our attention. We're surrounded by all kinds of things that compete for our affections. And so, theologically, we know God is majestic, but we don't necessarily value Him like we should. Genesis will help us to do that. Genesis will also help us understand ourselves, and that's really, really important. Why do we grow weary spiritually, even as God's people? And before we were God's people, why did we live like we lived and why is our world like it is? Why is our culture like it is? We'll see questions answered like this. Why do, I, why do I like it here? Despite the fact that this world has lots of problems, why are there so many things that we still enjoy? And why do I feel bound to this place? And of course, we'll see major questions answered like this. What's going to happen Nothing seems necessarily from day to day to change that much. What's going to happen with this place? Genesis will help us consistently see our God, and that is absolutely critical. Genesis will help us see ourselves. It will help us understand ourselves and those around us. Genesis will give us hope. So, as we move through this book over the next many months, we're going to see this major motif, this major sort of outline throughout the next several months. And that is that we will see creation, that God made the world for His glory and reflects so many amazing things about Him. And specifically, He made us. We are here 
because he wanted us to be here. And we are like we are because he wanted us to be like we are. We will learn about the fall. Why is the world so broken? What are the roots of the fall? And how do those same things still show up today, not only in culture broadly, but but in our own hearts? What is God doing about it, and how will it all end up? So today we're going to just look at kind of a broad overview of the book and get ourselves a bit of a rolling start and orient ourselves so that as we come into chapter 1, verse 1 next week, that we'll have a bit of a roadmap. From time to time, my wife and I like to go backpacking. And so, you know, I talk about this from time to time, and if I bore you with these stories, then I'm sorry. But these are our great adventures because we're not that adventurous. Like, I'm watching the Olympics and watching these people do, like, 1260s in the air and, like, flipping around. And I think, oh, man, I wish I was really that brave. And I'm not that brave. So every once in a while, I strap on a backpack and I go walk through the woods. That's, like, as brave as I get. But anyway, we do this from time to time. We love it. It's nice because you, you get away from everything and you can be out for, like, three or four days and you got to filter your own water and, you know, cook your own food and you got to work hard physically, and there's a big payoff in the end, and amazing views, and it's a good time to talk. Um, there's times where we're walking through the woods, and and I'm just I just want to walk and be quiet. But this is the opportunity when all when the kids are not there, and that's like catch up time for my wife, right? So, so we have this interplay of quiet time and and talk time, and she has amazing ideas on backpacking trips. So if you want to have really really good times of fellowship with your wife. Uh, guys, uh, buy some backpacks and go out in the woods. But anyway, before we do this, I am in charge of planning the trip. And so I'll buy maps, and I'll, I'll look at the maps, and I'll figure out, you know, how far we have to go each day. And I'll look at shelters and where we might sleep in a shelter. Or we might set up our tent. I'll figure out where water sources are because you can only carry so much water at a time because water's heavy and you have to filter it. Um, I'll, I'll find out dangerous places we probably shouldn't go. I'll figure out places where there's been like bear sightings and we shouldn't go there because we don't want to be eaten by a bear. Um, And then sometimes I'll call ahead and I'll find a a message board and I'll find somebody's phone number and we'll call ahead and we'll say, how are the conditions? Is it it really cold? Have you seen any bears? Have you seen any snakes? Are are, are there good water sources? Um, I'll, I'll set up like rides with people. So like we'll park at one place and somebody will give us a ride to the, a trailhead and then we'll hike back to our car. There's lots of planning that goes into these trips so that they don't go poorly. You don't want to be out in the middle of nowhere and have no water. You don't want to be out in the middle of nowhere and not have any food or not have the right clothing or put yourself in danger. It's not wise. And then we carry maps with us and we, we watch along the way as we go to make sure we know where we are. We've gotten lost really badly before and that's not a very fun experience. Maps and planning, these things are important. probably know where I'm going with this. An overview of a book like this, a pretty long book like this, is really important because we need to orient ourselves and see where we're going. I think it's difficult for us to take our modern eyes and read a document that's about 3,500 years old. I mean, this is not a new book. This is old. And in fact, the events of this book are much older than that. In fact, if you think about it, even if you date this book really, really conservatively, the events from Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are longer than everything from Genesis 12 till today. Think about that. That's kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? The first 11 chapters of the Bible uh, 
are concerned with more time, probably, than, than we have from Genesis 12 till today. It's crazy. So how do we, with our modern eyes, look back at that and do anything with it? Is it still relevant for us? In fact, I think sometimes because we look at it with modern eyes, we miss a lot of the point. Here's what I mean. Moses probably wrote this book around 14, 1500 B.C. That, that's about the best we can date it. Moses probably used some other sources and compiled them and edited them and put them into their final form here. But if you're Moses in around the 15th century B.C. and you're speaking to the people of Israel, what is it that you want to tell them? Why would you have written such a document? And if you're a first century Hebrew and you know, you're responsible for teaching your wife and your children and your nephews and nieces and so forth about who your God is, what do you need to know? Well, let's say that you're a first century Hebrew and you're one of the people that came out of Egypt. And Pharaoh chased you and your family and you made it through the Red Sea and you watched Pharaoh get crushed by the waters of the Red Sea and now you've come to Mount Sinai and God's given you some laws about who you can marry and what you can wear and what you can eat and all that kind of stuff and all the penalties if you don't do the right stuff. And now you're wandering around a little bit because some people made some really bad decisions. What do you need to know? And I think we have to try at least as best we can to recapture some of what Moses was trying to say when he wrote this book. And I think primarily he was coming at it from the angles that we're going to look at today. So as we orient ourselves to understand this book over the next many months, I think that Moses wanted to say to these 15th century Hebrews, you are here because God wanted you to be here. He made you. And guess what? He made everything around you. He made this wilderness. He made that mountain. He made these goats and bulls that we eat and that we sacrifice. He made the sun. He made the stars. He made the Egyptians. And guess what? Not only did He make them, He takes care of them at all times. And guess what? He made you. You are here because our God made you. But hey, Do you know why we're wandering around in this wilderness? Do you know why we grumble and complain? Do you know why we're full of fear? Do you know why we were enslaved? Do you know why God crushed the Egyptians? Do you want to know why we're going to have to go over the Jordan and have some war? Do you want to know why? Because our first parents were evil and they were prideful. And everything bad that you see around you All the big stuff you experienced and all the small stuff in your heart, your lust, your anger, your doubt, your frustrations, your marriage problems, your kids' rebellions, the fact that your neighbor, you don't always get along with him or her. Do you want to know why? Do you want to know why I'm not always a good leader? Do you want to know why you have a hard time following me as a leader? Do you want to know why? It's because of sin. But guess what? God is not going to leave us in captivity. Do you want to know why He got us out of Egypt? 
Do you want to know why he left us there for 400 years in the first place? Do you want to know why he's taking us to a promised land? Do you want to know why? Because our God doesn't leave broken things alone. Our God fixes broken things. Our God is a redeemer. And guess what? Restoration is coming. Our God promised it. We're headed there. That's why Moses wrote this book. And I think that we have to orient ourselves around his purposes, his design, if we're really going to understand it for us today. So why was this book written? Moses wrote this book to teach his people about who their God was, about why they were the way they were, and what God was going to do about it to make it all new. So, the first thing we're going to look at today is creation. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Genesis chapter 1. Now, I'm going to make the argument over the next few weeks as we move to Genesis 1 and 2 that Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are not primarily science documents. Now, I've already put a couple of you on edge when I said that. I am not saying that what Genesis 1 and 2 teach us are not true, okay? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that primarily what Moses was trying to impart to us was not about geology, biology, or cosmology. That wasn't his primary purpose. Although, and don't freak out, I think these chapters have something to say about biology and geology and cosmology and a few other things, okay? So just hang with me and don't freak out. I am as conservative as the day is long. I want to say that to you from the beginning, all right? I am as orthodox as they come, all right? But, but what I want to say to you is that primarily what these chapters reveal to us is that God is a certain way. He exists in a certain fashion. There's a certain essence of His nature that He imparts to us through creation. So ultimately, creation at least the accounts that we find here in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, say a whole lot to us about the character of God himself. So, again, as Moses wrote these things, what was he trying to teach these 15th century Hebrew people? He was trying to teach them things about their God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now notice, we kind of wish, don't we, that somehow Moses had gone back a little further, right? Like maybe a prologue, or or maybe like an author's preface. Like before you get into the creation stuff, can you tell us where our God came from? Can you tell us if he had any rivals? Can you tell us if if maybe there were like three other gods out there, and, and Yahweh is... He's the winner, like like he conquered their kingdoms. He sent some of his flaming angels out into their universes, and he conquered them, and he collapsed those universes into his. Oh, and what's he like? Is is there like, is he married? Does he he have kids? Like, Like, what's this God like? But Moses doesn't start there. He just assumes that there has always been a God, and he is the singular God. There's no competition, and there's no one like him. And this was important for 
15th century Middle Easterners. Because all around these Hebrew people, when they had been in Egypt, and as they're about to enter into Canaan, they're going to be surrounded by competing gods. A god of the sun, a god of the river, a god of the harvest. And again and again and again, these Hebrew people are are going to be encountering competition, competing gods, gods which seem to compete for their allegiance and their affections. And subtly, Moses makes a grand statement here in chapter 1, verse 1, by just assuming there's always been one God and he has no competition. And so Moses is saying to these Hebrew people, that's your God. And of course, then he goes on down through this and he says various things about the way God created. But subtly still, the primary point is not about how long it took God or what order he made things in or how he made them. The primary thing that Moses is trying to communicate is that everything you see around you, my Israelite people, is because your God wanted it to be that way. Therefore, your neighbors, and sometimes, frankly, your enemies, who who worship a god of the sun or a god of the river or many other gods that you see around you, they're false. They're not real. And in fact, the reason, and we'll see this in just a moment, the reason why so many uh, gods abound, why there are so many competing false gods, is because people take creation and they, they warp the way that they look at it and they have wrong views of it. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. We don't have a God-centered view of creation. Everything gets tweaked and mutated. And from the very beginning, what Moses is wanting to do is to call to account these people so that they will believe fundamentally that there is one God, and He is their God, and everything He says must be ingested and and loved, and adored, and embraced, and meditated upon so they can look at their world the right way. I think also what Moses is trying to communicate in regard to creation is that it's a gift. I think this is another way that we sometimes get a little off kilter when we read Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And by that I mean Genesis chapters 1 and 2 both end with a pinnacle. They move toward a goal. And in both chapters, the goal is God's specific, determinative love for His people. That is to say, humanity, mankind, you and me, we are the crowning achievement of His creation. I know it's important for us to understand who made the stars, and who made the ocean, and who made the land, and who made aardvarks and who made platypuses and everything else we see around us, primarily what God wants us to understand is everything we see around us is for our enjoyment. Because in both chapters, and though they approach creation a bit differently, in both chapters it ends with a discussion of God's people. So in creation we find that God made everything. And it wasn't hard. He did it by the word of his mouth. He just spoke it into existence. This shows his power, and I want you to see this as we move through these chapters over the next few weeks. It shows his love. 
couldn't God have made this world kind of sterile? Couldn't He have made it where, where it's kind of gray and it's kind of flat and water comes from a spigot and, and there's just enough air to breathe to sustain us and, and food is drab and there's zero beauty around us and we live in long columns of housing and we all wear the same clothing and we all look the same and we walk around like drones. Couldn't God have made such a world? But He didn't. He made it diverse. He made it with people with brown skin and olive skin and peach skin. I don't know what we have. You know, we're not white, like, but we're di- we look different. He made tall people and short people and stocky people and thin people. He made funny people and serious people. He made the skies, sometimes cloudy, sometimes bright blue. He made the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. He made beautiful animals. He made mountains. He made lakes. He made oceans. He made rivers. He sends the snow to help water the earth and give us moisture. And give us corn and barley and wheat and rye and steak and pork and chicken, and green beans, and kale, and other things for people who don't eat meat. I mean, He does these things because He cares about us, and He wants us to experience the diversity of His wisdom and beauty. Why did He do that? I think it displays certain things about His character. He's manifold in His wisdom, but He delights in giving us things that we enjoy. But primarily, What Moses wants to communicate to his people, and of course to us today, is that everything we see around us had a cause, and that it came from God himself, and that we must give account fundamentally to the one who made all things. We'll see some things explained as we move through this explanation of creation. I've already said this one, but Why is my culture like it is? Why did God want there to be various cultures globally? Why do we love it here? We'll talk about that as we move through the book. How do I explain my conscience that I'm not just this physical being, but there's an immaterial part of me? Why is the world so religious? We'll see some of these things as we discern the essence of creation. We could say way more but we're just orienting ourselves for today. Secondly, we're going to learn about the fall. You'll notice at the end of chapter 2, if you don't mind turning there, Moses subtly says something very important in chapter 2, verse 25. Again, the crowning achievement is creation. He makes the environment, and then he plants the people in the environment. And he says about them, They were both naked and were not ashamed. They had nothing to be ashamed about. And I think there was horizontal peace and there was vertical peace. There was no shame between the two of them and there was no shame between them and God. Everything was just right. Perfect environment, 
perfect people. But of course, you know the story in chapter 3, which we will not rehearse in great detail today. Satan comes along, causes the couple to doubt the goodness and authority of God. They turn their back on God and the whole race is plunged into sin. Here are some questions that we will ask along the way, and I believe the text will give us some answers. What is the root of sin? In other words, why do we sin? Is it because we covet? Is it because we're prideful? Is it because we crave power? Is it because we crave satisfaction? I think it's those things and more. How will answering those questions help us today? Because fundamentally, we're still the same kinds of people that Adam and Eve were. Why do we posture? Adam and Eve did this, finally. As soon as they sinned, they start posturing. Well, it was her fault, and you kind of made this happen, God. You could have withheld this from us. And, and, and by the way, you know, we've got this figured out. We can clothe ourselves. And they immediately postured. Why do you posture? Why is it so easy for us to be defensive whenever our ethical behavior is called into question? Why do you always put your best foot forward? Why do you never want to let people in on the bad stuff? Why? Why do we hide? And sometimes we hide in plain sight, don't we? Adam and Eve tried to hide behind some bushes and through some fig leaves. We, we hide in plain sight very often. Why do we do that? Why do we fight? Why do we lie? Why do we get angry? Why do we suffer? You see, it's hard to gaze at other people's sin. Don't you ever feel that sometimes? Like there's this sort of strange evil delight every once in a while in knowing some tidbits about people. That's kind of the way we are. It's why we gossip. It's why we slander. I think that'll always be sort of attractive to us. But once you've dealt with people's sin long enough, I find seasons of this in pastoral ministry that that once you've had a really hard week where you've dealt with a lot of people's stuff and your own stuff, and probably the latter is the harder thing, you can get just very kind of disgusted by it. You don't want to see anymore. It's hard sometimes just to gaze at other people's sin but it's really hard to gaze at our own. We don't like that. We like the good news. We don't really like the bad news. But Genesis is going to force us to look at other people's sin, and, and if we have eyes to see to look at our own, that's going to be a little bit uncomfortable, but it's going to be really important for us. If you think about it, though I believe Moses wanted to tell these 15th century Hebrews why they were the way they were, I think you also wanted them to be updated a bit on the fact that those problems still existed in their day, and of course they still exist in our day. It's hard to face our incompetencies. It's hard to face our unworthiness. It's hard to face our inabilities. Genesis put 15th century Hebrews in their place, and we need some of that today as well. So we're going to learn about creation, why God made the world and what it says about Him, that He's powerful, but as we've already seen, He made this world very powerfully to be this beautiful environment in which we can enjoy ourselves and enjoy Him. Creation shouts many things about God, not the least of which 
It's His love for us. But of course, we rejected His authority. We rejected His love, and the fall explains that. But God didn't leave it that way. We know that. God promised redemption. We've seen this many times over the years here, but in Genesis 3.15, right away, God comes along and curses the serpent. And He says that He's going to send an offspring who will bruise the head of the serpent. And by the end of chapter 3, He has clothed these people not with fig leaves, but with the skins of an animal. As a picture prophecy that one day a lamb would be slain to clothe these people with righteousness. Redemption is promised right away. And it's not because God was just quick on His feet. This is one of the reasons why the New Testament helps us look back at Genesis with proper eyes. We understand from the rest of the Bible that God had a plan already set in motion. And it was just time to flip the switch and kick it into gear. God was not reacting to the sin with a good plan, a good alternative, a backup plan. God was enacting His plan that was before the foundation of the world made. He made it that way. So redemption is promised. In fact, we're going to see a lot about Christ Himself in the book of Genesis. Jesus says to the disciples after He has been resurrected, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Genesis teaches us about Christ if we have eyes to see. Turn with me, please, to Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, you find one of the many promises that God gives to His people. One of the striking things that I want you to see as we move through this book is that God promises and promises and promises And just when you think He won't make any more promises because His people break their promises, He makes more promises. Here's one of the amazing ones in Genesis 15. After these things, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my house will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He brought him outside into his creation and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now, generally speaking, theologians look at this passage and say that the multitude of stars is a representation of that Abraham will not only have progeny, he'll have kids and grandkids and so forth, but that through Abraham's progeny, through Israel, the whole world will be blessed. So the multitude of stars in the heaven represents the fact that God will bless Abraham and through Abraham bless the world. But Paul narrows this in Galatians chapter 3 when he says, Now the promises are made to Abraham and to his offspring, It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. 
What's Paul saying here? Because this is a little cryptic. Paul is not denying that Abraham would have lots of family. Paul is not denying that through Abraham's family, the entire world would be blessed. Paul is saying something more than that, though. He's at least saying that, but he's saying something more than that. He's saying that one of those stars in the heaven that Abraham looked at, in some way Abraham understood that a Messiah would come through his line and be the means of blessing to the world. So, subtly, Christ is to be found throughout Genesis. We find this in other places as well. Turn to Genesis chapter 22. In verse 9, you know the story pretty well, I'm sure. This is the time where Yahweh calls Abram, Abraham at this point, to sacrifice his son Isaac, which made no sense because of the promise that we just saw in Genesis 15. But Abraham trusted God. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him up on the altar on top of the wood. By this time, Abraham is starting to believe God and trust in his promises. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. A lot of theologians believe that this is what we might call substitution. Just at the right time, a ram came along and he got what Isaac was about to get. John the Baptist, when he encounters Jesus right before Jesus' baptism, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Jesus preexisted. Remember, he's one of the ones who we see in Genesis 1, 1, making everything. So Jesus is to be found all over the place. Later on, if you don't mind, turn to Genesis 49. We find not only something about Jesus' atoning work, as we see in Genesis 22, but I think we also see in Genesis 49 a promise that Jesus will be king. Specifically in verse 8, as Jacob is about to die, he gives blessings to each of his sons. He says in verse 8, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Well, this didn't happen right away. And even once the Judean kings began to rule in Israel, it was a disaster. But how does this all end up? Well, it ends up in Jesus. Because in Revelation 5, John says, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. We just read about that here in Genesis 49. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And in Revelation 19, John says, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So, 
In Genesis, we're going to learn about redemption and specifically how it will be realized in Christ. So God made the world for His glory. It reflects His character and it's a gift to His people. Humanity rejected the goodness and the authority of God and fell into sin. God, if He were like us, would have crushed them, but He's not like us. He promised redemption and He carried it forward. But that's not where it's going to end. We're aiming for restoration. We will take some time with us, of course, over the next few weeks as we learn from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But let's look today at Revelation chapter 21 as we close. Genesis itself, I believe, begins to whisper things about restoration. By the time you get to the end of Genesis, chapter 50, there is not restoration. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. They're certainly not in a garden-like state. It's not Eden. In fact, they're not even in Canaan. They're not even in the promised land that God promised to Abraham at the end of Genesis. They're in Egypt. If you know anything about the next book of the Bible, Exodus, pretty soon they're going to be in slavery. Nevertheless, I think Genesis whispers some things to us about restoration. And I think the other book into the Bible, if Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are the first book into the Bible, the other book into the Bible, I think, Genesis chapters 21 and 22. Look with me in verse 1 of Revelation 21. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, every sin, every moment of pain, every act of rebellion, every regret, every feeling of guilt, The God who showed up in the garden and promised redemption will carry it to completion and He'll wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. No more sick children. No more broken marriages. No more children disappointing you or parents disappointing children. No more war. No more trouble. All the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new, just like I did at the beginning. It's like recreation. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment, just like those rivers ran through the garden. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. God's going to divide it all out. A perfect environment for the righteous. Then in chapter 22, John says, And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, 
brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. What's that sound like? Sounds like Genesis chapter 2 and 3, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Don't you long for that? No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and He will not come to them in judgment and retribution. It will be love. His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. So it will be different than the original creation. It will be better. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And then in verse 17, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So, Revelation reminds us that restoration is coming. Genesis whispers it, but God's going to bring it to completion. So, with, with bright eyes, with the ability to see clearly, we can look back at Genesis better than Moses' original audience. But the messages are really still the same. We have an amazing, powerful Creator that loves His people. And though humanity has rejected Him, and though we still today reject Him every time we sin, He has promised us redemption. Christ is making all things new. And we look forward to the time when all things will be new. So that's what we'll see as we study Genesis together. So I want you to keep that grid in mind, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, as we read. And I want you to be asking yourself along the way, what does this text teach me about my God? What does this text teach me about me? And therefore, how should I worship Him? I encourage you over the next week or two, read through the book. It would be great if you would sit down all at once and read it. If you want to break it up a little bit, read chapters 1 through 11 in one sitting, and though this is a little bit imbalanced, read chapters 12 through 50 in another setting. But I encourage you to do that. Orient yourself with the book. Read with that grid in mind. Read with those questions in mind. And as we study together, it is my hope that we'll not just fill our heads with stuff, but that our hearts will be changed as we see our God, see ourselves, and know how we should respond to Him and worship. So, I want you this week, and this is your call now, this is your response, I want you this week to meditate on the things that we've talked about today. I want you to take this grid that we have introduced today and that I hope that you will further explore and ask the Spirit to help you look at the world this way. As I view myself and as I view the world, why is it like it is? And specifically, I want you to do this. As you look at the world through that grid, I want you to ask the Spirit to give you a merciful heart, a compassionate heart, that you will be able to take the good news of our God, what He's like and what He has done for us, and share it with somebody else. So as a response of mission to what we've already seen today, and hopefully that we'll unpack a lot more over the next many months, I want you to ask God to help you see this text, to change your heart, and to approach this world with the good news. Will you do that this week? Will you pray that way? And will you talk to someone this week who needs this good news? I challenge you to do that. So let's stand together. After we sing, you'll have an opportunity to respond.
by giving of your lives to each other, by giving of your resources in the box in the back. But before we do that, let's respond with a song of exaltation and praise. Come now, family.